we've been working in a series. I say working in a series. It just started last Sunday. But we're going to continue the series that we started on last Sunday. And that, that series is entitled In the Beginning. And we said on last Sunday that we titled it that because at the, this is a beginning. And at the beginning of anything, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, a lot of foundation laying has to happen, core values have to be, uh, you know, expressed and embraced and all of that. And so that's why we're calling this series In the Beginning, because this is the beginning of something new. Uh, and so then as we continue that series today, I'd like to highlight our next core value on the list. We have six of them. Uh, I'd like to highlight the next one on the list that is up for us to talk about today. Last week, we talked from the uh, core value, the first one that says, we believe that worship is a lifestyle. And we used the illustration of how Abraham was a worshiper and how his whole life was built around worship. But today, today we'll go to the next one. Uh, and today we'll talk about the, our core value that says that we believe in loving God by loving his people. Uh, that's, that, 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 that is central to what we believe. We believe that love is the key and that if we are going to love God, it means that we have to love God's people. Uh, there is, I'm not just going to wing it. <laughs> there is a story in Scripture, I believe, that uh, illustrates that core value quite effectively. There's one. There, there's a story there. So I ask you, if you will, to join me in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And if you're familiar, or if that sounds familiar to you, you'll realize, or, even, or if not, when you get there, you'll notice and remember that that is the story, uh, the parable, rather, of the Good Samaritan parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'd like to read that passage before we get started, beginning in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. Uh, the ESV version renders the text this way. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, 
the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. As we look at our core value of loving God by loving his people, I'd like to lift for a theme, if you will, today, the last line of this passage. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So by this time in Scripture, uh, in the life of Jesus, uh, Luke records that quite a few extraordinary things have already happened. Luke records that uh, Jesus has now come through 42 generations to be born of a virgin. Luke records that Jesus has been baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. He's overcome being tempted by the enemy in the wilderness by now. Uh, by now, he's chosen 12 disciples to follow him and to be taught by him and to glean from him. Uh, by now, he has healed the sick. By now, he's raised the, the dead. By now, he's fed the hungry. By now, in the life of Jesus, Luke records that he's quieted storms. He's preached the Sermon on the Mount by now. He's even gone to what we know as the Mount of Transfiguration, along with Peter, James, and John. And then so that is a quick recap of what's happened so far in the life of Jesus. But then that allows us to arrive then at chapter 10. And as we arrive at chapter 10, Jesus here is approaching the climax of his earthly ministry. And as he approaches the climax of his earthly ministry, he seems to be moved uh, to the point to where he wants all the world to be exposed to the gospel. So then he first sends out his disciples, the 12. He sends them out and says, go into every town and every city. And he says this, take nothing for your journey. He says, take nothing. Go into the houses and, and tell them about me and heal the sick and raise the dead. Do all of that. Then we get to chapter 10 where we are now. And not only he moves from just sending out the disciples, he now sends out 70 some of your Bibles say 70, some say 72. We're not exactly sure it was around that number. Uh, 70 or 72. He sends them out. And when he sends them out, he says, I'm sending you out as lambs amongst wolves. I'm sending you out to evangelize. I'm sending you out to heal the sick. I'm sending you out to be my ambassadors and to be my witnesses before all the people. So he sends them and they go out and they do what Jesus has sent them to do. And they are amazed and fascinated with the results. Kevin, they are so excited that when they come back to Jesus, they're excited. And they say to Jesus, they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And that's amazing to us. We're, 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 amazed. we're blown away that even the demons tremble at us in your name. They're excited, but Jesus calms them down. Jesus calms them down, and Jesus says, uh, that's great. I understand that you're all excited and worked up over that. He says, but don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. 
Don't, don't get all excited about the external stuff. He says this. Don't, don't get all excited about the external and the temporal stuff. He says, here's what you should do. Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's a message and a word for us today. Don't get consumed and caught up in the temporal things and the external things. Our joy should be in the fact that our names, hopefully, is written. In the book of life. And so then it's against this backdrop and in this context that we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so as we examine it, I'd like to examine the lessons that we learn in this parable from the main characters. Those main characters are number one, the lawyer. Uh, number two, the nameless man. And then the religious men. And then lastly, the Samaritan. And I give you just a heads up and a clue as to where we're going with this. First three are bad. <laughs> but the last one is very good. Just want you to know. I just want to kind of prepare you for where we're going. So first, let's take a look at the lawyer. In verses 25 through 29, what is it that we can learn from this lawyer? As we examine what he says and his actions and his reactions, what can we learn from him? I believe that one of the lessons we learn from the lawyer is this. Arrogance is always unacceptable. Arrogance. There, 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 there's no place. And it's always unacceptable. By, by this time, the scribes and the Pharisees have developed a great hostility towards Jesus. He posed a threat to them as they felt their positions of prominence were being challenged. Also, they found his teachings to be contradictory to their customs and traditions. So they were threatened. They didn't like that he associated with sinners. They didn't like that he seemed to genuinely love and care for everybody. Because of this, they plotted to bring him down either by death or by disgrace. They just wanted to be done with Jesus. They wanted to destroy him and to bring him down. And so then this lawyer, this scribe that we read about in 25 through 29 in the text is part of this group. He's part of this group that has, has just about had it with Jesus. So with impure motives and after the high point of verse 24, when Jesus is excited and his disciples who have returned are excited about what's happened when they went out and Jesus is sharing good news with them. And then this lawyer, this scribe stands up with impure motives and ask a question. He asked this question to test Jesus. He says this, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, he, he was he was he was trying to set him up. He, he wanted to he wanted to he wanted to expose his hope was that he would expose Jesus as the fraud that he thought Jesus was. That's the reason why he asked this question. But Jesus says in verse 26, he says this. He asks him. He, he returns a question to him. He says, well, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Uh, uh, one commentator says this about this this dialogue. He says that as Jesus replied, perhaps he was pointing to one of the phylacteries the lawyer wore on his forehead and wrist. These phylacteries that they wore were little leather boxes of various sizes. And in these leather boxes uh, were little parchment rolls 
containing certain texts from the Pentateuch. So when Jesus asked him what is written in the law, he seems to be saying, uh, you have the law <laughs> right there with you. And obviously, uh, you, you, you know what's in the law because you're reading it. You have it in, on your person. So what does the law say? What, what does the word say? And so we know then the lawyer responds and we know from the lawyer's initial response in verse 27 that he is not guilty of ignorance. That's one thing he's not guilty of. He is by no means guilty of ignorance because what he does is he quotes Deuteronomy 6 and, Levit and Leviticus 19, 18, and he says this. Here is what's written in the law. The law says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your strength, your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he responds in the proper way. I know he does because Jesus said it. Just a little side note, whenever Jesus says it, that means it's true. <laughs> right? Whenever, whenever Jesus confirms it, whenever Jesus says you've done right, you've done right. And let me say this, whenever Jesus confirms it and says you've done right, it's best for you to leave it alone. <laughs> right? It's a, it's a good idea when Jesus said you've answered it right to stop there. But this guy doesn't do that. Jesus says, Jesus says you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Can I say this as a side note? The correct answer to the question is the same answer that is the correct answer for every question that you face in life. No matter what the question is, love is always the answer. Now, I know it's hard to believe that, but I, 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 I challenge you to challenge me on that because if your children are not acting well, love is the right answer. If you're lost and can't find your way, love is the right answer. If you're having difficult financial times, love is, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, love will help you to come out of that, whatever that problem is. Love, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly, but I'm saying to you that love is the right answer no matter what the question is. It fits in every situation. So he is not guilty of ignorance. But we find from his next response in verse 29 that he is guilty of arrogance. Because in 29 says that seeking to justify himself he says, who is my neighbor? He wants to show Jesus up. He he, he, his initial intent was to show him up and to prove him to be a fraud. Jesus poses him a question and he, he figures, well, I haven't gotten him yet. I can get him here. If I, hadn't, if I hadn't cornered him yet, certainly this question will corner him because he's not going to be able to explain to me who my neighbor is. So he says, who then is my neighbor? So this scribe, this lawyer, he had some things down. He, he, he had some things going on in his life, right? Uh, he had tithing down. He knew how to tithe. He knew all about what the law says about the coming and the anise and how it is that you ought to tithe. He, he knew all about that. He had that down. Uh, he had fasted. He had fasting down. He fasted regularly, and he understood all about that. He kept all the feasts. He knew how to do that. He knew exactly how and when to pray. He knew all that. He had all that down. He, he, he was good there. He felt like he was in pretty good shape in regard to God. But his neighbor, his neighbor, he hadn't even thought about that. In fact, he probably said what some of our young folks say today. Ain't nobody got time for all that. 
What neighbor? What 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 what, what is that? I, I don't I don't have time to be fooling with that. So he says, who is my neighbor? A proper response from him would have been, help me, Jesus, to love my neighbor well. Show me how to walk this out. Show me how to build a relationship with my neighbor. Show me because I don't know how to do it, and many of us don't. In fact, here's, here's, here's something that is striking about the way we live today. I think the automatic garage door opener is the worst enemy ever created in the world because when I was growing up, we didn't have those. You had to park the car in the garage and get out. And if your neighbor was outside, you knew their names. You knew their family. Now, the person right next. And, and here's another thing. Neighbor is more than the person that lives next door. <laughs> but it's, it, it, it's sad. It's a sad indictment on our current condition when we don't even know the person next door's name. Don't know how many children they had. When I was growing up, the whole community could uh now this word may sound strange to some of y'all but some of y'all will understand this my the whole community could whoop me anybody know what whoop means <laughs> see y'all a lot more of y'all are laughing than I thought so a lot of y'all know what that word means everybody in the neighborhood if I if I got if I did the wrong thing But we came up with all these new inventions. Now you pull in the garage, pull in the driveway, open the door, drive in, let it down behind you. Don't ever see anybody, don't know anybody, don't know their name. They don't know yours. The lawyer says, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And so then he didn't, he didn't respond in the proper way. He, he could have said something else. So we must, he, he responded in arrogance. We must be mindful that arrogance or pride are often deadly. In fact, it's biblical because Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a hearty spirit before fall, right? Uh, I'm reminded of a story of a Boy Scout, a minister, and a young computer scientist and a pilot. Pilot, Boy Scout, minister, and a young computer scientist. They're all on a plane. Pilot, of course, is flying the plane, right? <laughs> Say that, I need to get that straight. There, there arises a problem with the plane. And suddenly the plane begins to descend at a high rate of speed. And they realize as panic sets in that the plane is going down. So they panic and they think, what is it that, how, what do we need to do? And all of them agree that we need to put on parachutes and get out of this plane because the plane's going down. But that revelation becomes sadness when they suddenly realize that there's only three parachutes on the plane for four people. So the pilot rushes out of the cockpit and the pilot says, hey, I need a parachute. I'm married. I have a wife and four children and they're going to need me and I can't die. They need me. So the pilot grabs a parachute and puts it on, jumps out of the plane. <laughs> the young computer scientist comes and he, and he says, listen, I've got all a wealth of information that the 21st century needs. And if I die, I'm going to take it all with me. The world needs me. 
So he grabs a parachute, puts it on, and jumps out the plane. The minister comes to the young Boy Scout and he says, young man, I've lived a long life. And there's only one parachute left, and my desire is that you would have it. I, I, I'll just go down with the plane. Boy Scout says, looks at him and says to him, that's all right, Mr. Minister. That young, smart whippersnapper of a computer scientist just grabbed my knapsack <laughs> and jumped out the plane. Arrogance, pride can be deadly. We have to know that. Be careful of that. Next, next, next. Let's look at the, let's look at the nameless man. Let's look at this nameless man. This nameless man in verse 30. Uh, I see as we look at him at least three lessons that we can learn from this man. At first glance, let me just warn you, at first glance, because remember, remember I said that the first three were going to be bad. And you're probably thinking, well, what in the world could this man have done wrong? Well, at first glance, this man appears to be completely innocent. He doesn't appear to have done anything wrong at all. All I will, uh, and I will agree that he doesn't purposely make any literal mistakes, but he does represent some figurative ones that I want to share with you. First thing is he represents the dangers of digression. The dangers of digression. The text says, if you'll notice, that uh, he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, let me come over here. He goes down from Jerusalem. He digresses from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I just want to share with you, there's danger in digression. Geographically speaking, Jer uh, Jerusalem was located uh, some 3,000 feet and 17 miles above Jericho. But not only was Jerusalem higher geographically, it was also higher theologically. Jerusalem was the holy city, the city and the center of divinity, uh, and the city of consecration, not just back then, even today. It stands as a mecca and a center of, of divinity and holiness. It represented holiness. Uh, and this man, this nameless man, by the way, he's nameless, which means that uh, you can put your name in there. All the men in this parable are nameless, but this one in particular, I think all of us can substitute our names for that for him. And we can we can we can uh, look at our lives and see at those times when we have digressed. Most of the time it's led to danger. He went down and it's always dangerous to go down to digress or devolve from holiness or righteousness or godliness to anything is always dangerous and risky. Uh, when he does this, now, he didn't do it knowing, he didn't know I was going to preach about this one day. He was just on his way somewhere. He didn't know that I was going to blame him for doing something wrong one day. right? He thought he was just fine. right? But all of us are guilty of that. Sometimes we do things not thinking that we're doing anything wrong, but we are actually committing uh, the, 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 the mistake, if you will, of digression. And when we do, we can find ourselves in a similar situation. What situation did he find himself in? It caused him to fall among robbers, the robbers that frequented the road to Jericho. And he ends up being robbed, stripped, 
and left half dead because he goes down. He didn't know he was make, making that mistake. Oftentimes we don't. But not only does he represent the danger of digression, he also represents the societal dilemma of being in limbo. When he finds himself in harm's way, he is in the middle. He's neither in Jerusalem nor in Jericho. He is figuratively speaking riding the fence. He's lukewarm. And I say to you that our society oftentimes is afraid to take a stand on one side of the other. And I submit to you that Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. He says, take a stand somewhere. As for me and my house, as for me and my house, you've got to say it like Joshua says it in 2415. Nate, Joshua says, as for me and my house, I'm taking a stand. They may not follow me, but I'm telling them this is what we're going to do. Amen. And if I'm doing it right, they'll follow me, won't they? He represents the danger of being and the dilemma of being stuck between two places. He's not yet arrived in Jericho, and he's no longer in Jerusalem. That's a dangerous place to be. And although he represents these two mistakes, the mistake of digression and the dilemma of being in limbo, he also represents the need that surrounds us. The fact that we are constantly surrounded by those in need. And if we look at what happens to him, he represents that for us. You just look around. I said, I talked a little bit about some of it earlier. There's need all around us. Like this nameless man, you are surrounded right now by people who are in need. You say, well, what, what kind of needs are there? I could be here. Somebody said, oh, goodness, and you're right. Uh, remember, I said I have a clock. I'm not going to start down. Y'all know some of the needs that are around. Nate can testify there's a need for young people at John Tyler. There's a need for young people. Uh, Allison can testify at Robert E. Lee. There's a need for, for, for young people to be in the company of godly folks who can model for them a godly life. There are families that are falling apart. More families are falling apart in the church than out of the church. People are hungry. People are hopeless. That's the reason why we believe that hope is the right name for this campus. Because we resent, we represent the hope of Jesus Christ. So he, he, he represents for us the need that is all around us. Here, so here's a question. As I race and hurry to beat this clock, I'm going to beat it today. I promise you. <laughs> question is, here's the question. Question is, what do we do when we encounter the needy? What do we do when we encounter those needy people? Uh, the final two lessons represent our options. We can, we, can, we can follow one of these examples. Option A is that of the religious men in verses 31 and 32. The priest and the Levite. From these two men, we get a lesson in religion versus relationship. These two verses, by their example, we get this lesson in religion versus 
Because of their standing in the community and their supposed commitment to God in godly ways. Uh, so here's what they were responsible for. The priests performed ceremonies and represented the people of God before God. The Levites assisted, they were under, if you will, the priest. They assisted the priest in performing their duties. They should have, because of their standing in community, what they re represented because of their title. We got to watch this because some of us hold some titles. You know what all of us, you know what title all of us hold? <laughs> all of us have the title, although you may not advertise it. There are people that know that you claim to be a Christian. And if we wear that title... It's just like, it's just, let me give you this example. It's just like going to McDonald's and ordering an apple pie. Excited. My favorite dessert. You order the apple pie, the box, you, you, when you got to the drive-thru, you ordered apple pie. The person said, okay, your total is whatever, whatever, pull up to the window, you get up to the window, you pay your money, you get your bag, you pull out the apple pie, and on the box, on the package, it says apple pie on the package. Then you're so excited because this apple pie is your favorite, and it reminds you of what grandmama used to make when she made apple pies, and you're so excited about biting into this apple pie, and when you bite into it, it's a cherry pie. The label doesn't fit the contents. And if our label says Christian, then what's on the inside of us, when life takes a bite out of us, Christianity ought to ooze out. These men wore titles. They represented something in the community, uh, but they didn't live up to their titles. Instead uh, of, 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 of assisting and helping them and loving them and being considerate of the man that was on side of the road, instead of this, both passed on the other side. They were bad neighbors. Perhaps they were too busy. Busyness is a sin, and I'm guilty of it sometimes. My wife ought to raise her hand when she, she'll say, what are you doing? Why, why did you say yes again? <laughs> there are no more yeses that you can have. <laughs> you know, but I'm on my way somewhere, and I'm trying, I spent too much time in my life saying no and not being involved and not leading by example, and sometimes it's hard for me to say no, especially if I figure that it's a worthy cause. But the, perhaps these men were too busy. We get busy with church stuff. We get busy being church folks rather than Christians. And perhaps they were guilty of this. Perhaps they were selfish. Perhaps they were living in a bubble. Perhaps they were talking the talk but not walking the walk. So then this option is not the option for us, which brings me to option B. Option B is that of the Good Samaritan in verses 33 through 35. And from the Samaritan, we learn this, WWSD. I bet nobody can tell me what that means. Let me help you. It's similar to WWJD. We all know what that means, right? What would Jesus do? This one, the lesson that we learn from the Samaritan is what? we should do. That's what WWSD means. What we should do when we encounter the needy, the Samaritan teaches us what we should do. 
Ironically, the Samaritans were hated outcasts. But it's from this outcast that we learn how much better we can be. He shows compassion to someone who was different from him. Record is that it's likely that the man who was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho was a Jew. Can't confirm it, but it's likely that he was. And here it is, a Samaritan who is hated by the Jews and the Samaritans who hated the Jews and didn't mingle together, did not uh, uh, have relationship together. Here it is, the religious men who, had, who should have seen after this man, a Samaritan who's different, who's of a different race, ethnicity, a different tribe, a different tongue. Any of this sounding familiar to anybody? Decides that it's his responsibility to show compassion. And he chooses to be inconvenienced, chooses to spend his resources, chooses to do what was not considered popular. Some of us can do some of that stuff. You know, we can, we can be inconvenienced from time to time. That's okay. We can do what's unpopular. We're talking about spending our resources. Wait a minute. I'll spend resources on this person who's not like me. Now, I, let, me, let me add a caveat to that statement because this town is by far one of the most philanthropic towns or cities that I've ever seen or been a part of in my life. There are people in this community that are giving to great efforts and great ministry all around us so that I believe that uh, there's a lot a big part of our community that's not guilty of not being willing to spend their resources, even being inconvenienced or even doing what's unpopular. So I think for the most part, we got some of that down. We do that and we do it well. Uh, but I think we still have a ways to go. And so we can learn from the Samaritan that sometimes being like him is going to cost us. It's going to cost. So, so here's what I want to do as I prepare to come to a close, right? And I'm only going to say that one time. <laughs> not only as we look back at this parable, not only uh, do we understand and know that uh, and understand better how to love from this parable. We see that. We see it played out there, right? We see how to fit it in and uh, make it fit with our value of loving God by loving his people. But not only does this parable accomplish that, it also, for me, and it ought to be for you, a picture of the gospel. Can you see it? It jumps off the page at you. Have you noticed the gospel in this parable? Let me help you. We were the man on side of the road who had been robbed, had been wounded, and had been left half dead. That's us. But then this Samaritan named Jesus notices us on the side of the road. I'm not ready yet for that. I got a little bit more to go, but stay there. Stay there. Stay right there. We're not ready for the invitation just yet. I got, I got a couple stories to tell. <laughs> but you're good. I like it. Jesus comes by, Smitty, and he sees us wounded and stripped and robbed and left half dead. You know what he, do, he does? It costs him something. He's willing to spend not just resources, but his life. He goes to Calvary and pays the price for us. 
And just like the Samaritan, he says, if there's anything else old, when I come back, you do know he's coming back. I'll pay it all when I come. I've already paid it all, but I will finish the work when I come back. Uh, Desmond Tutu says something that's interesting to me. He says this. He says, compassion is not just feeling with someone, but seeking to change the situation. If you're going to be compassionate, be prepared for action. If you're going to be compassionate, be prepared for action. Now, let me share with you a lesser known parable. Can I do that? Can I come down here a little closer? I want to share with you the parable of the mousetrap. Anybody ever heard that one? It's a little lesser known. Uh, I like it. It's one of my favorite stories, the parable of the mousetrap. There's a mouse who lives in a farmhouse, and one day he peers out of his hole in the farmhouse, and he notices the farmer and his wife opening a package. So he gets excited, Stephanie, on the inside. His, his spirit is leaping because he's wondering what kind of food could this be in the package that I'm going to have my way with as soon as they go to bed. But to his dismay, he suddenly realizes that what's in the package is not food but a mousetrap. So he, he is just devastated and what does he do? He makes his way to the barnyard and he begins to yell out as he gets to the barnyard, there's a mouse trap in the house. There's a mouse trap in the house. The chicken who's clucking looks up at him and says, Mr. Mouse, calm down. I understand your excitement and your concern for this, but it does, there's nothing that I can do. So he continues doing what he's doing, clucking and doing whatever chickens do. So the, the mouse goes then to the pig, says, Mr. Pig, Mr. Pig, there's a mouse trap in the house. There's a mouse trap in the house. Pig looks up and says to him, that is of no consequence to me. I'll tell you what I'll do, Mr. Mouse. I'll pray for you. Somebody's guilty of that. <laughs> Leaves the pig and he goes and he sees Mr. Cow. Mr. Cow is chewing his cud. And he says to Mr. Cow, Mr. Cow, Mr. Cow, there's a mouse trap in the house. There's a mouse trap in the house. And the cow looks up and says, that is no skin off of my nose. So the mouse heads back to the farmhouse to face the farmer's mousetrap all alone. Late in the night, that same night, there's a loud noise that sounds like a mousetrap that has been tripped. Farmer's wife arrives out of her sleep and walks in to investigate in the dark. She doesn't realize that what has happened is, is that there has been a snake, a venomous snake, that has been caught in the mousetrap by its tail. And as she passes by, the snake bites her on the leg. The husband, of course, wakes up then and realizes that his wife has been bitten by a venomous snake and he rushes her to the hospital. Get to the hospital, the doctors treat her and send her home. But when she comes home, she has a fever. And all of us know that the best way to treat a fever is with chicken soup. So the farmer takes his hatchet and makes his way to the barnyard 
to retrieve the main ingredient for the chicken soup. She gets a little better, but she's still sick. And because she's still sick, people like Sister Jones come by and visit and sit with her around the clock. And because so many people came to visit her during her time of illness, the farmer has to kill the pig to feed them. Unfortunately, she doesn't get better, and she eventually dies. She's a well-known woman in the community, and all the community come to her funeral and come to the repast at the farmhouse. Because there are so many people, more people than are in this room, that come for the repast, the farmer has to butcher the cow to feed them all. The mouse looks on this from his hole in the wall with great sadness. What's the point? Point is this, we're all in this together. What affects one directly affects all of us indirectly. We have got to love one another. And when I'm hurting, you ought to hurt. And when you're hurting, I should hurt. Let's pray. I'm ready now, John. (laughs) Father, I thank you. And I praise you for how good you are. Lord, we pray that we would be people of love, that we would express.